Welcome to the Central Seminary Podcast. Thanks for joining us today as we discuss biblical and theological issues relating to life and ministry. This podcast is a ministry of Central Baptist Theological Seminary in Plymouth, Minnesota. To learn more about Central Seminary, visit our website at www.centralseminary.edu. My name is Jared, and I'll be your host. Welcome back to the Central Seminary Podcast. Today we have Dr. Bob Freiberg with us, and he is a retired military chaplain. And he's here on campus because he's teaching a class on chaplaincy. Dr. Freiberg, welcome. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. So he's going to talk to us today a little bit about military chaplaincy and what that involves and what that looks like, and maybe even share some stories from his uh, ministry and service in the military. Before we get there, are there any any books that you're reading or anything that you want to share with us in that regard? Um, some of the books that I'm reading are basically the uh, uh, a lot of the sermons that were going on right before the Revolutionary War from the pulpits of, of Americans. And uh, it's really interesting because we always think and look about that the American Revolution happened because of the no taxation with representation. However, before any of that happened, there was an ecclesiastical type of warfare going on. Uh, many of the people during the, during the uh, uh, early part of the colonial America, they came here for freedom of religion. And you had the dissenters like the pilgrims who were actually hunted down by uh, uh, Charles II's uh, uh, people there in England, and they were thrown in jail because they weren't part of the Church of England. They were preaching and teaching uh, Christianity, but they were severely persecuted, and that's why they came to America. And uh, you also had the Puritans who were, uh, if you know anything about uh, James I, James I hated the Puritans, even though he was a Protestant, uh, uh, he, he was a Protestant king, and he was head of the uh, Protestant uh, Church of England. The Church of England essentially had their own form of worship, and if you were separate from that, you were persecuted. And the Puritans, mm-hmm. um, the form of worship that they had was was uh, very, very close to Catholicism. And the Puritans, of course, wanted to eradicate any form of Catholic worship. They had just had a, a civil war over that in the English Civil War. And so what they did is they uh, they opposed it, and they, they tried to purify it, and James basically uh, declared them to be public enemies, number one, and that's why a lot of them ended up leaving, um, leaving England and coming here to America. So what you had was you had uh, the dissenters, you had the Puritans, and now all of a sudden what happens about 100 years later is England was going to impose uh, the Church of England on them, and that is when the pulpits started coming alive because they wanted to keep their freedom of religion. And uh, here in America, they, they had freedom of religion from basically any kind of persecution from England. And uh, when England was going to um, kind of put the screws to the Americans and say, hey, you've got to be a member of the Church of England and you've got to worship our way, uh, that caused a lot of hate and discontent. Mm. So I'm reading some books on that and doing some research on it. So it's, it's kind of fun. Okay, great. 
So uh, why don't you talk to us about how you got involved in chaplaincy ministry? Was that, was that always a desire of yours, or how did, how did that work for you and your, your calling? Well, um, <laughs> I can tell you the story. I was teaching science in a Christian school in uh, Walla Creek, California. I had graduated from Central, and I went there uh, from here to there. And as I was uh, going through some things, uh, I just had a nice, quiet moment. And I said, you know, one of the things in my life I've always wanted to do is, is kind of be in the military. Now, I was a little bit older. At the time, I was 34, 35. And I said, what is it that I can do to kind of help my country? And uh, I don't know. It was just one of those things and thoughts that God moved in my heart. And uh, uh, I always loved my country. And I figured, well, that's one way to do it. And how can I do it? And um, even though I was teaching science in a Christian school, my undergraduate degree is in biomedical science. So okay. I was able to teach uh, at the high school level. But uh, I just had a master's degree from Central, and so at that point I said, well, maybe I can go in as a, um, you know, something, something religious. I had no idea. Mm. Well, it just so happened that we had a guy, uh, he was the janitor. We call him just the janitor. <laughs> Real godly man, uh, found out that he was a World War II Korea and Vietnam veteran, and he was a... Uh, he was a command master chief in the Navy, and he says, hey, Bob, have you ever thought maybe uh, maybe you'd like to be a chaplain in the military? And he says, well, I, you know, I've been watching you for a couple of years, and we were, we were good friends. In fact, I found out later on, Maurice was one of the original SEALs during World War II. They weren't called SEALs then, but uh, uh, he was a man with, with a wonderful, wonderful pedigree uh, military, uh, 33 years in the military, and uh, he, he retired, and he was just the janitor. You know, uh, never told anybody what it was, but he told me about it, and God used him to kind of ask some questions. And so I, I went to the recruiter. Uh, it was the officer recruiter, and uh, kind of told me a little bit about chaplain ministry, and I said, uh, yeah, that, that sounds like fun. And um, But at that time, I went in for the reserves. Okay. Because uh, I wanted to stay teaching. Uh, I was having I was having a lot of fun teaching. You know, I I enjoyed it while I was in it, but I don't miss it. <laughs> That's something else. It's another story. But God worked it out so that uh, during the summer, working in a Christian school, you know, of course I I got paid nothing. But the thing is, is during the summers I could go in active duty um, for temporary, and uh, then I it it paid the bills. Let me put it that way. And that's, that's how it happened. Okay. So why don't you talk to us about the need for chaplains and uh, some of the notes you sent me, you talked about uh, how chaplains are mandated by the constitution. Ah, Can you explain that to okay. us a little bit. Yeah. It's interesting in the, the chaplaincy and the chaplain ministry, um, Congress, uh, our United States government cannot have their own chaplains. In other words, uh, we, they do not, uh, they have to be neutral when it comes to religion. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, that's why they go to the civilian sector and, and ask for, for pastors and everything so that they can come in and be, be chaplains in the military. And um, the only two military officers that are mandated in the Constitution is the commander-in-chief and chaplains. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Now, it doesn't specify chaplains. How that came about is because uh, there's, there is a, uh, 
something called Katkoff and Marsh. It was a, uh, uh, a decision made by the Supreme Court that you have, you have in the United States military in the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law for the establishment of religion. That basically says, and what it means historically is, we're not going to favor one religion over another. Now, historically, it meant we're not going to favor Baptists over Presbyterians or Presbyterians over Catholics. Okay, it was all Christian uh, historically, but it's, it's, it sense means that basically we're not going to favor one religion over the other. But it also says, nor prohibit the free exercise thereof. So what happens, that means that if you are on a ship and you are a sailor that wants to go to church on Sunday— um, you can't just go to the captain and say, hey, captain, can you take me to my local church uh, way back in, in uh, San Diego? Mm-hmm. You know, you're out in the middle of the ocean. And right. so, you know, it ain't going to happen. So what, what, the, uh, what happens then is Congress, through the Constitution, has to provide some means, a form of worship for that, that individual. Okay. So that's why chaplains are right there. Now, the original... Um, the original Continental Navy, they understood this dilemma. So they required the very first thing when, they, when Continental Congress got together and say, we're going to have a Navy. And the first thing that they thought of, the first thing we're going to have is we're going to have someone that has to preach a, a sermon twice a day per day. Hmm. And wow. so that's why you know, they, they felt it was so important to do this that that's what, what number one thing. The other two and three and four and all that goes on. And basically that's, that's the logistics and how to basically have a Navy. Okay. You know, so that's, the, that's kind of the histori- history of the, the mandated why you need chaplains in the military. Because we go places where, you know, the, the local pastor can't. And it's to provide for the needs, the, the spiritual and religious needs of the, the men and women who serve in, in the United States military. Okay. Wow, I, I would not have guessed that. That's interesting. <laughs> well, so do you want to tell us a little bit about the history of the chaplain course and uh, uh, how, in your notes, you put they're, they're directly related to the formation of our country? Yeah. So let's get into that a little bit. Well, that's that's part of the thing that I was also mentioning to you earlier about uh, you know the pulpits that that were pounding out the need for for religious freedom from from England. Um, my favorite guy that I've gone through is, is a man by the name of George Whitfield. Now, most people know him as he was one of the main impetus for the Great Awakening. Mm-hmm. The Great Awakening was a movement. Um, there was America and London during the time, uh, great, great apostasy. There's a lot of stuff going on during this time. Uh, alcoholism is rampant. Uh, women don't want to go out at all at night because uh, the, the towns, frankly, were not safe. Uh, there's a lot of, lot of terrible, terrible things going on at this time as far as society, a lot of chaos. And so out of this, there was a man by the name of John Erskine. He was a Scottish divine, and uh, Scotland was suffering from the same, same malady. We're talking about 1735. So he ends up uh, in this. He goes through and basically he prays to God and he says, God, you know, we just can't sustain this. Uh, this is terrible. This is awful. And God, you know, please, please help us. We don't know what to do. So what happened then is he was the, 
he was kind of the founder and the start of the what was known as the Scottish Revival. Okay. So something happened. He wrote a book. Uh, it was very popular. And then Scotland went through a revival. Not only that, but it was it, then they had an enlightenment afterwards. And a lot of it, it all started with John Erskine. Well, John Erskine happened to also have a friend in America whose name was Jonathan Edwards. Mm -hmm. And he wrote his book, and he sent it to Jonathan Edwards, and uh, Edwards wrote it. He was moved by it, so he started praying too. And when he prayed, what happened is many of the uh, uh, many of the things that that were starting to go. There was, you know, the the movement of God and the Spirit of God was working in a really powerful way, uh, not only in his local church but in the area. And so what he did then is he wrote a book. It was very popular. Again, there's. All revival in history has always been uh, through prayer. And so there's a lot of prayer that went on. And then at this time, there's another guy that shows up on the scene by the name of George Whitfield. George Whitfield uh, started out in England. Uh, he was born in Gloucester. And then he ends up, he comes to America, he does his thing in England, uh, becomes fairly popular there. And then he comes over here in America and he's preaching and teaching the word of God. Well, because he actually is one of those those uh, those preachers that preachers and teachers and, and clergy that actually believes in the Word of God, mm -hmm. um, he wasn't allowed to preach in many of the uh, many of the churches because the churches there they were they were formalized uh, they were called what was known as the old lights. These you know yep. church has to be done different. It has to be done a specific way. And and to be honest with you, they were dead in the doornail and. Probably they weren't preaching salvation by, you know, through grace, through Christ. Mm. And so they didn't let him preach in, in their churches. So Whitfield, what he did instead is he started going outside and preaching. Well, lo and behold, what happened is he would go to a place like uh, uh, the Commons in, in Boston, and he'd have a following of 5, 10, 15, 20. Uh, Philadelphia, he had them as many as 30,000 people. Wow. And... Uh, so it was during this time he was he was a phenomenon. Uh, he was he was he was a rock star of his day, and so people came from miles around just to hear him preach. Now, uh, it's not to say that he didn't have his pushback. He had his detractors. He had people that absolutely hated him. There was a lot of there were a lot of things written about him. A lot of hatred. A lot of hate and discontent. Primarily, it was from fellow clergy. Well, uh, so many of those people that he preached to, when they got saved, many of them took, took the Lord seriously. There was a huge revival that happened, and then George Whitfield, um, many of his converts then, they went to the seminaries. Now, the seminaries at this time were pretty dead, but when uh, Whitfield came on the field and uh, other people were, took him serious, again, it was a revival of God, and these people ended up essentially... Uh, Changing the, the the Harvard, Yale, and Princeton was started because both Yale and Harvard had, had gone liberal, and uh, so so there was a lot of things happening in these seminaries, all because of the excitement generated from the preaching and teaching of of the gospel. And as people got saved, they went to the seminaries, and the seminaries then uh, they were trained and taught, and then those men ended up going out into society, uh, becoming the the pastors of each of the communities. Now, uh, this went on until about the early, uh, early 1760s. And the, right around that time, you had the French and Indian War. And the French and Indian War, everybody pretty much uh, was supportive of England. 
mainly because they didn't want the Catholicism of France to to be Im- embedded in in North America. So they did it to eradicate that because they didn't want to go back to the days of the pre-Reformation, you know, where the the Pope and the King were 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 very very close. So that's what happened with with uh, English Protestantism during that time. But something happened after the French and Indian War. England was in huge debt. England ended up winning the war, but there was a huge debt. In England, what they uh, they were broke and they needed to look for someone to pay for for the war. And because they were broke, they went after the colonists. And then that's when they started, uh, they had the Stamp Act. And in the Stamp Act, the interesting aspect about that is uh, it was not well received at all. And, uh, you know, American history usually tells us that's when no taxation with representation comes by. Well, then at that point, what happened is George Whitfield, uh, he's going back and forth uh, doing revivals in, in, in London and also in, in America. And when he was there, him and Benjamin Franklin were good friends. Franklin lived in London for 16 years. Franklin goes to uh, everybody, this is in history, Franklin goes to Parliament at the invitation of the British Prime Minister. He goes up there, and as somebody wrote, it it was like a schoolmaster schooling little children. (laughs) <laughs> and in other words, he for four hours he went there and he told them why Americans didn't like the Stamp Act and what's going on. And and uh, Frank Franklin is usually generally uh, touted as being a deist. Well, a deist does not look to God as as the person that that runs things. A deist is somebody that says God is in, you know he's impersonal, he's distant. Uh, basically, we run and do our same thing. Well, that's not Franklin. If you read his his writings and stuff like that, one of the people that he brought with him during this time was his friend George Whitfield. So Whitfield was right there when all of this happened, and uh, uh, he was he was also uh, kind of uh, kind of mentoring with Franklin about spiritual things. They were friends, and Franklin was a guy that uh, ended up uh, publishing much of Whitfield's uh, works. And uh, a lot of people don't know that either. But many of the, going, coming back to America, uh, many of the pastors then, what was going on in England, those guys that had been saved and converted under Whitfield's ministry many years earlier, they were preaching and teaching against, and this is, like I said, the book that I was, the books that I'm reading now are going through the sermons that they had uh, in local communities against England, against primarily the, the Church of England. Because the Church of England, in order to control the people, uh, and Whitfield knew about this, and he told this to to, uh, the people in America when he came in, he was telling them that there's a a plot in England where they're they're going to have a bishop of... of, bishop, uh, an Anglican bishop, which is going to force all people... um, not necessarily to be part of the Church of England, but the Church of England is going to be um, is going to be the main religion that people have to follow. Now, at that time in England, you had to be a member of you had to be a member of the Church of England if you wanted to have a public job, uh, if you wanted to be if you wanted to be run for office or something like that. You had to be a Church of England. Yeah, and uh, so that was you know there was basically no religious freedom in that. So uh, they were trying to impose the same thing here in America because it was an American colony at the time. Well, George Whitfield then told the people that, uh, 
And then, of course, he, he died in 1770. And then most of the pastors at that time were preaching and teaching against, uh, um, you know, the you know, the heavy-handedness of the Church of England. So like I said, there's a religious component to America and what was going on at this time that is not taught in history books anymore. Now, um, this this all went on, and uh, finally, uh, we all know that in 1775, that's, that's when the shot heard around the world happened. Uh, but the interesting thing is many of these pastors who had been preaching for years against the Church of England... Um, what they did is they encouraged their their uh, pulpits. Now these are these are all basically um, kind of the second generation from George Whitfield's preaching. Okay. So many of the uh, many of the communities then, uh, through the encouragement of their pastors, joined the American Revolution, and these are the men that did the fighting and bleeding and dying, um, and and they were basically preached and taught the Word of God through George Whitfield through their their pastors now here's here's the big thing 70 percent 60 to 70 percent of the chaplains um were the pastors of the men that fought and bled in the american revolution in other words these are the men that were preaching and then what they did is they they gave up their community pulpits so that they could go serve as as chaplains in washington's army wow so that's the connection that, that all of that has. It's a long way around it, but the thing is, you can make that direct connection. And uh, the only thing is, is it's, it was pretty much well-known in American society and American history up until about 1920, 1930. That's when, you know, liberals got a hold of it, and, you know, they, they told most of the story, but they didn't tell the whole thing. Hmm. So, and that's one to grow on. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. So say uh, maybe one of our listeners wanted to become a chaplain today. What does that pathway look like? What are the requirements? Uh, how do they enroll? Talk to us about that. Okay. Well, there's many different ways. First of all, uh, there's different kinds of chaplains. Chaplains is a ministry that, of course, is different from the pastorate. In a pastorate, the people that you deal with are regular churchgoers, you know, and uh they're there every Sunday, and everybody knows and understands that. But with a chaplain ministry, you have institutions that you have a lot of people where part of the need, I've already mentioned, like if you're out in the middle of nowhere, you need a chaplain, uh, a clergy that is out there that can that can preach and teach the Word of God and, and can help meet the spiritual and religious needs of, of people in the military. Mm-hmm. Now, if a person wants to do it, um, there are ministries like in hospitals, prisons, because uh, you're dealing with people then that that have spiritual needs. And but in the military, if you want to do that, that's a special calling. Uh, sometimes I think you got to have half a lobotomy if you want to go in the military and and you know and be away from your family and things like that. But it's a special calling. And I remember I was out in the middle of the. Uh, of the ocean and I was out in the deck of a ship and I started banging my head against the wall saying, what have I done? You know, uh, I have a wonderful wife and my son is, is back home and I should be there with them. And, and I miss them, but you know, God had called me there and that's why I was there. Now, if a person wants to do that, uh, part of the qualification that you need to do is, is I'm, I'm telling you officially from the military standpoint, what you need, you have to have a master divinity, and so you've got the religious qualifications. The next thing you need is three years of pastoral experience. 
And and can I go back? It's not just any master's divinity, right? Doesn't it have to meet a certain number of credits? Well, um, it used to be that the credit hours was 92, if I remember right. It's either 92 or 96. And, of course, Central uh, offers that. And mm-hmm. so Central really prepared me well. Um, I'm, I'm very thankful. I had other chaplains that I was there with. You know, they had masters from, from Harvard and Yale and things like that. But they didn't have Bible like I did. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so from that aspect, they were really, they were really uh, uh, lacking. Um, but because you also have other faith groups, you've had Mormons, you've got Muslims, they don't have an ordained clergy like we do in, in Christian circles. And so what they did then is uh, they offered a master's degree, but it was, if I remember right, I think it's 76 degrees. Okay. Uh, 76 uh, uh, credit hours. So what they actually did is they lowered the standards. And I was a verbal, at the time when they made that change, I was a verbal uh, critic of it because there's just so much that, that happens within that those other hours where you get training, uh, where you get experience. Uh, it's an extra year seminary. And um, I was saying, we're going to get chaplains that are coming in that aren't uh, that aren't really qualified, that aren't ready for the, the rigors of the ministry. And for instance, counseling is, is one of the first things that they, they just don't have experience with. Yeah. So anyways, uh, I'm speaking in general terms, of course, because there, there are differences. But so then what se- many of the seminaries did is they started lowering their standards. So, you know, those that had 96-hour credit hours, uh, they lowered them down. And so because of that, uh, they wanted more, more of their people to go in and, and be a chaplain. So that's an unfortunate thing. But, you know, it's kind of a race to the bottom. Right. Yeah. yeah. And we experienced that here at Central with our programs. And that's why I asked because I, I, I knew it wasn't somewhere in the 70s. And I know you can go other places and get a Master's of Divinity degree that's much shorter than our program. Um, so yeah, we're, we're in the midst of that from an educational perspective as well. So, cause people want to get that degree with less work and less time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but like I said, it, it's one of those things where out in the field where, where the rubber meets the road, where you're meeting the needs of the people and, and, uh, uh helping them with the real issues of life, those people. And I found it time and time again. They just didn't qualify. They just didn't know and understand the issues, and they didn't have the answer for them. And that's the problem of, of trying to short skirt, you know, something that was time-tested that actually worked over the years. Yeah. So you need a Master of Divinity. What else? You need a Master of Divinity. And also, you need to be in shape. You need to be in good physical shape that you can uh, meet the rigors. Now, most chaplains are a little bit older. Uh, the average age at that time when people went in, they were about 35. You know, most of the people at that time when I was, when I first came in, most of the people that you deal with are between the ages of 19 and 25. So, you know, you have a much younger people. Um, one of the things that I did is, is um, I was at training commands. For instance, I was with the Marines and I was at uh, uh, MCRD, which is and Camp Pendleton there in uh, San Diego and and California, and many of the things that I did in training with these guys is I worked out with them. You know, I would I would go running with them, and uh, that also happened when I was with the SEALs. I was in the early 40s when I was in there, and uh, 
one of the things was uh, I would go out for at least one hour a day and work out with the guys just to say hi and, you know, this is what I'm doing. And, and it, I still remember many a time uh, swimming out in the ocean and these guys are talking to me and asking questions and say, hey, chaps, what about this? And, uh, you know, in between breathe, I remember I was breathing like <laughs> – like I had no breath left and, you know, and I, I was talking in between breaths and things like that, but it's something that they remembered and they appreciate, you know, this old guy that was out there with them. And, uh, um, you know, I was in fairly decent shape, but the thing is I wasn't in as good a shape as they were, but it was, it was a means that I could be with them to talk with them. So being in shape is another good thing. Uh, another thing that you have is at least three years of pastoral ministries. And by doing that, hopefully you have an experience of knowing how to perform the, uh, uh, they call them divine, divine uh, ceremonies. In other words, uh, you know how to do a communion, you know how to do a, a, a baptism, uh, you also know how to do, perform a wedding. And you've had pastoral experience in that, so all you do is you take those experiences in the pastor, and then you become a unit. You put on the uniform, and then you transfer those skills, those that knowledge over into uh, over into the the military. Okay. And uh, the last thing you need is what's called an ecclesiastical endorsement uh, from an ordination. You have to be ordained. Uh, some people that I know, in especially in our circles, they feel I don't need to have uh, to be ordained because I already know I have a calling from God. Or, ordination is a public recognition, basically based on the Book of Acts, and when Paul would publicly recognize certain people are set aside for the gospel ministry, and um, so that's that's another thing that you need. And then you go through what's called an ecclesiastical endorsement agency. The agency is kind of a uh, um, kind of a, a kind of like a missionary agency where they send out missionaries, but in this case, it happens to be chaplains for the military. Um, you've got in the ecclesiastical endorsement, they make sure that that all of your all of your ordination, all of those other uh, criteria are met, and and you're ready to go, and you can work in a pluralistic environment. Now that's that's the big sticker. That's that's the one that you know a lot of people say. Oh, I don't think I can do that. It's not for everybody. Now um, there's other things involved with that, but we have in the military. Um, it was something called cooperation without compromise. In other words, you're entitled to your beliefs. Uh, what you have to do, you know, you don't have to compromise them. But the thing is, is uh, you have to learn to at least work work together with other people. And uh, even if they're of different faiths, and uh, um, one of the strange things that I found out was there were some Catholic priests that I became good friends with. Now, we would sit down, we'd talk theology, and, you know, I'd tell them, I said, you know, you got to be careful because, you know, <laughs> eternity rests on if you're right or wrong. Mm -hmm. And so you, we would talk about that, but it's, it, was, it was done in a very collegial way. Uh, they were good friends. Uh, we cared, you know, we cared for each other, and, and uh, uh, we would talk about things of the Lord, which, which was exciting. It was fun. Um, now, there were, there were other Baptists that, that were there that they were just jerks. You know, I said, oh, wow, you know. Uh, for some reason or another, they had thorny personalities. And, uh, but um, that's the thing is that, you know, you can work with these people, even though theologically your your world's apart, and you know their theology is wrong. 
and I and I told told my my Catholic friends that I said you're wrong, and and uh, that's why we ended up having a. Uh, uh, one guy in particular, I remember we were talking, and I said, "You know, you're you're wrong as can be, and uh, you know, and, and the Bible Bible proves that I'm right." And then he looked at me and says, "You know what, Bob? If this is 400 years later, I think I would have had fun watching you burn at the stake." Yeah. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> I mean, we all said it in jest and all that mm-hmm. stuff, but there's some truth to that too, you know. So. Uh, uh, those are the things that you need. And the ecclesiastical endorsement uh, agency is sometimes what happens if you if you uh, uh, let's let's say people don't like what you're teaching or preaching, and you run into some problems with the command or something like that. Uh, the ecclesiastical endorsement agency is there to help you. Okay. Uh, you know, if if you you run into to difficulties with people that don't like your theology. Okay. Does the military have um, certain, like, I forget the exact term, continuing education units or credits that you have to do? And is that a prerequisite for becoming a chaplain, or is that just something you have to do while you are a chaplain? Well, you have professional qualifications because there's two aspects of being a military chaplain. One of them is uh, obviously you're a clergy. You're sent out by God, you know, to represent your faith group, but also to preach and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ, to meet the needs, the spiritual needs of, of sinners that are in need of a Savior. And there's that part of it. But there's also another part in the other side of your collar for your rank. Uh, you have a rank insignia, which means that you are an officer in the United States military. So there are standards that you have to meet, whether it's, whether it's uh, uh, meeting the qualifications of the the annual PT, uh, you had to do that twice a year. And uh, in the Navy, it was you had to run half a mile, uh, a mile and a half uh, in a certain length of time and how many sit-ups and push-ups you can do within two minutes each. So, you know, they had a rank for that. And uh, uh, there's there's other other things and qualifications that they have. But as you go through, these are uh, these are all things as you need as a professional. There's a professional aspect, and uh, uh, one of the things that they did with me is uh, I could go to PG school, postgraduate school, and uh, they paid for me to, uh, to take a year off so that I could go to Trinity uh, in Deerfield, Illinois, and I could get my THM degree. And I got it in patristics, and it was all on Uncle Sam's dime. And it was neat because uh, I could dress up as a civilian, but I was getting military pay during the whole time. So that, that part was good. And also, the, you had the GI Bill, and uh, for professional, what I did is I also got my doctorate at the time and um, uh, later on. And it was all part of the professional development you have. Now, the other thing that you have is you've got warfare qualifications for the, for the people that are part of the line community. The line community, those are your war fighters. But in order to get to know many of them, what happened is I took a lot of the same training that they did. Uh, for instance, you had a, a pin called the surface warfare pin. And you would sit through classes, you'd find out different parts of how a ship works, uh, you know, whether the radar, the weapon system, things like that. And I would sit in these classes with these people. Uh, I would learn these things. I didn't have to do it. But the thing is, I did it because it was, it was a way that I could interact with, with the people. It was, it was part of the ministry. Yeah. Plus, also, some of the stuff was fun. Uh, for instance, 
when I taught science in the Christian school that I was telling people about, um, uh, I had a student, and I won't mention his name, but uh, he ended up, he was an instructor, a flight instructor at the uh, Top Gun School. Oh, wow. And uh, when I was with the Air Wing in the, uh, in the Navy, I was on an aircraft carrier, and I, I was the chaplain for all of the Air Wings. Uh, helicopters, uh, helicopters, the uh, uh, jets, everything. And so I, I took my backseat qualification that I could fly in all of these things. And uh, that, was, that was pretty extensive. It was, it was pretty intense. Um, but anyways, found out that one of my friends, uh, one of my former students was a Top Gun pilot. Mm. So as the Air Wing chaplain, I went to go visit him. And he says, hey, Bob, how'd you like to go fly in an F-18? And I go, well, as a you know, Pope Catholic, you know, or the four-pound rubbing fat? I said, yeah. So anyways, he took me up because I was backseat qualified. And uh, we broke, I remember we broke the speed barrier. And, and for, for just a, a minute or two, he let me fly it. <laughs> and wow. uh, that was, yeah, that was quite the rush. And uh, so I had the distinction of being one of the few chaplains that had broken the sound barrier. Wow. Yeah, so that was, that was just fun. But he was, he was a good brother in Christ. He still is. Uh, he, he now is a pilot for Southwest Airlines. But uh, those are the, kind of the neat things that happen um, being a chaplain in the military because they got the coolest toys. <laughs> so... Anyways, um, professionally speaking, like I said, there were things that I, I did for my own ecclesiastical things. There were things that I did as far as knowing and understanding about, you know, whether it's, whether it's being in the air wing. Uh, I also was in a, 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 I had a tour with the submarines, so I was able to, to go on submarines and do that stuff too and hold services on subs. Uh, I won't tell you how deep in the ocean we were, but uh, I, I can tell you that some people came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as a result of the, the Bible studies we had wow. on the sub. So it, it's fun. And you know what? You get paid for it. <laughs> <laughs> you have a lot of fun, you get paid for it. So that, that was a good thing about it. So are there any, any restrictions? You know, a lot of people hear things or maybe they're asking the question, can you preach the gospel? Can you, you know, pray in the name of Jesus? Do they put any restrictions on your message? And uh, how, do, how does that work? Maybe particularly if you're uh, ministering to someone who's maybe not of your faith, are there limitations there? And what can and can't you do? That is... For people who are interested in the chaplaincy, that's especially evangelicals, that's the number one question I always get. Mm -hmm. And my answer is yes, you can preach in Jesus' name. You can preach anything that you that is that is biblical. And um, there is a there is a something called Article Five Thirty Three in Title Ten, which gives chaplains the freedom to preach and teach in Jesus' name. It is something that also goes through essentially. Um, you aren't forced to do anything that's against your, your faith group, okay. you know, the people that you representative, and they can't, they can't punish you for it. Now, the reality is that, keep in mind, Jesus said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. And even in the military in the United States, there are some people that just don't like Christians. And uh, some chaplains that I knew uh, that I know in the past have preached the gospel of Christ, uh, whether it's in chapel or, or some someplace. And so some people have called them on it, and they, they, they don't like it. And so because of that, 
Uh, it's more of a subtle thing. They can't come right out and say, you can't preach in Jesus' name. But instead, what they do is they say, well, it's best not to do that. You're going to offend somebody. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I still remember I was in a, a chaplain meeting one time, and one person got up and they prayed to the God of the East, the God of the West. Wow. And, and I just looked around and I, I said, no way am I praying this prayer because it's, it's for a pagan. And, uh, you know, some of the prayers that we have, the only one it offends is God. So anyways, uh, yeah, I was very verbal then. I said, you know, please don't ever do that again. I was, I was greatly offended. And the person supposedly was a Christian chaplain. But again, this person wanted to be diverse. They wanted to, you know, please, please everybody. And I said, those are not things that God is pleased with. And so, you know, you try not to be contentious but you want to contend for the faith. And uh, there's, there's a way to do it. And I, I tried to do that. I tried to be reasonable. And, you know, when, when it came up and, and I would take people to the side and just say, you know, really, this is, this is kind of uh, an important thing that, that you need to consider. But what they do is oftentimes people that are, that are quote-unquote evangelical, they, they can't come right out and say anything, but it's more subtle. It's kind of a... Uh, uh, and I, I, I felt, and I, I actually went through this plenty of times where it's kind of a passive aggressive thing. You know, they're not going to come right out and get you, but you get a reputation. Okay. And as you get a reputation, what happens is, you know, you're not a team player, you know, you're, you, you need to play the game. And then what they do then is, uh, Usually the senior ones, they have what's called a fitness report. Now this is Navy. The army has a different, different system. But after, uh, after the end of the year, they come out with what's called a fitness report. They write it up. And because you're one of those evangelicals, now George Whitfield had the same problem because mm-hmm. he was known as an enthusiast. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, that's what a lot of the preachers wouldn't let him preach in, his, in, his, um, in their churches because he was an enthusiast. So, you know, you're enthusiastic about the things of God. In fact, the word in theos means excited about God. That's what that where the word comes from, and so what they do is is they they give you a fitness report that is not, you know, that is not as good as it could be, okay, or should be. So then what happens is you go to a promotion board, and then you know people see that and they compare it with other people's in the promotion board, and they say, oh, there's something wrong with this guy. This this person is not as strong a candidate for promotion as this one, and that's that's how it works. Okay, it takes time. Um, so very rarely in the, in the Navy do evangelicals make it past lieutenant commander. So, Okay. Well, do you have any stories that you want to share from your chaplaincy ministry? Anything that pops out? No, not offhand. Um, all I can say is, God, I went into the military chaplaincy with the idea I was just going to go for one tour. And my idea was, God, if you want me there longer, you're going to have to just open up doors. Mm-hmm. And uh, after the, the first tour that I had, my commanding officer, I was going to get out, and the commanding officer said, have you ever thought of maybe a career? And I said, no way. <laughs> <laughs> but he said, uh, he said uh, my commanding officer w- was, a, was a Christian. And, and so um, what he had to say I thought was very, very uh very wise, very, very good. So he basically said, he says, well, you know, I think, why don't you just keep on in as long as God keeps the door open, you know, just keep on stepping through those doors. 
And so I did that all the time. And uh, wonderful experiences as I go through. Uh, like when I was with the SEALs, I got a chance to deal with many of those. Uh, there's a lot of movies from, from, uh, from that time during the, during the war of Af Afghanistan and Iraqi freedom. Um, many of those people had different uh, things happen, and I was able to minister to, to many of them. Not all of them, but, but many of them, because I, because of my experience with, with the chaplains, uh, my experience with the SEALs, because some of them were, were my students there at uh, Basic Underwater Demolition School. Okay. So it was fun seeing with those. I could, I could go on and war stories about that, but, uh, um, you know, obviously there's not enough time for that. But uh, uh, plus also a lot of things in the chaplaincy, you have, um, when people come in for counseling, you have confidentiality. It's complete confidentiality. So when people come in, uh, they can say anything, and there's no mandatory reporting for mm -hmm. me. I mean, it can be terrible things. And I did have people from the war that would come in, and they had the guilt of some of the things that they had done during the war. And some of them were even, um, um, some of those things were even considered war crimes. But the thing is, in complete confidentiality, in the in the safety of that time in that room, I could tell them about the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and how basically what they had done, there isn't a sin that humanity has has done that Jesus Christ did not pay for on the cross. And so that was the thing that I could bring to the table in complete confidentiality that they could, uh, they could hear and they know that they could be forgiven. And there were many, many strong warriors that I knew that, that cried and blubbered like little babies. Mm. You know, the tears were crying, coming down, and it was, it was extremely intense. But it was one of those things that because of being a chaplain, I could be there and preach and teach, uh, give them the give them the forgiveness that only Jesus Christ can, can give. Mm. And that's very freeing. It's very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Freiberg, for taking time to share this with us. Uh, before we close, is there anything you just want to take time to praise God for, something that you've seen him do recently in your life? I've seen the Lord do some pretty wonderful things in, uh, in the life of some of the people in our church. One of the things that I've gotten involved in my local church, which is really, really wonderful, uh, we meet every Monday. And when we meet on Monday, there's about, there's about anywhere from 10 to 14 of us in the room. And the wonderful thing that I see is we pray for all things. Uh, people put their prayer requests, we put them together. And the pastor is there, the assistant pastors are there. And uh, we kind of go through what the prayer requests are. And... As we go through this, we just pray that, you know, that, that God will help somebody get better, uh, help somebody with, with certain things. But the beauty and the wonder that I see is taking the time to pray. It's, it's, early, it's, it's always early Monday morning. And the wonderful thing is seeing how God just answers. You know, whether anything very simple to something that it's very, very just, just an absolute miracle. And it's just wonderful to just be there and see a wonderful God answer and, and, and you know, answer our prayers, but also, you know, just, just to be concerned enough that he would answer those prayers, you know, even as simple as they are. So I, I'm always, I won't say I'm amazed by God's grace in, in answering prayers like that, but it's, it's just fun to see. It's just one of those satisfying things in our life that we, we end up going through and say, oh, thank you, God. 
And so that's what I am. The whole thing, I'm very thankful for God's God's protection, his watch care, and uh, all the stuff that we have that, that we have to be thankful for that we just don't take it for granted. Hmm. So, Great. Well, thanks for sharing, and thank you for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. Next time on the Central Seminary Podcast. Every person that walks past us in the mall or the grocery store, they have a story. Those types of questions can be helpful in getting people to open up and getting people to feel like you care. But I can't, just like you said, (laughs) I can't mandate how they receive that or what they do with it. And it's not just a missionary thing. There's an inherent interest that we should have towards other human beings. If I don't finish a book, it means that it was extraordinarily bad. Do you have any regular rhythms or routines in your life that help you to be visible in the the town where you minister? Tattoos are one of the greatest benefits to like starting conversations. But really, you know, if, if that's what we mean by soul winning, uh, I can't win a soul. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. Preparing myself to see people. I have plenty of unfinished books in my library. The concept of letting your prayer list guide your priorities. Look for our next episode on the Central Seminary Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Central Seminary Podcast. Our mission at Central Seminary is to assist New Testament churches in equipping spiritual leaders for Christ-exalting biblical ministry. Since its founding in 1956, Central Seminary has sought to provide serious students of God's Word with robust theological education as they prepare for ministry. We have many graduates around the world who are serving in countless ways to spread the gospel and proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Find out more at our website, centralseminary.edu.